seated. Well, good evening and, uh, and a welcome to anyone who is uh, new or visiting for the first time. It's good to have you uh, with us. And for those who don't know, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. Uh, we've been going through a sermon series on 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's been several weeks since Joel began that series. Um, and this series is meant to be an overview of the book. So we are not looking at all the nitty-gritty details of 1 Corinthians, but we are studying uh, 10 problems that Paul identifies in the Corinthian church and how really uh, the gospel of Jesus answers those problems. So our um, passage for tonight that Joel assigned to me is called Sexual Immorality Defiles the Church. And it's a difficult passage, but we do obviously recognize that all of God's Word is valuable. We preach through God's Word here, and uh, we don't shy away from the difficult passages of the Bible. It seems like there sometimes there are more difficult passages than there are easy passages, but um, I trust that God's Word uh, will be uh, beneficial for you tonight. So if you would, look with me in your Bibles at page 1134. And that's uh, Sexual Immorality Defiles the Church, chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. And this is God's Word. Let me read it to you. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man, as his father's wife, his, his stepmother... And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Well, this is God's word. Um, why don't we ask his help in understanding it? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And um, we thank you for this particular passage and what it has to teach us. Lord, help us to understand. Give us wisdom that we might understand your word uh, correctly. And Lord, may, it, may you use it 
um, to help us as we grow in our faith, as we live as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we seek to serve him in this world. Lord, help us. And Lord, um, we pray that your word would really just penetrate those parts of our lives uh, that need to be um, conformed and changed uh, to your, uh, that we might be better followers of Jesus and comfort us as well through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last five years, um, I've come to realize, and you might realize this too, but we have a very different way of speaking. I have a Canadian accent, you have an Australian accent. You have these words that you use that I don't always understand. And some of these phrases I've come to know are, I find interesting. Um, what I call a carpenter, you call a, thanks. What I call a sandwich, you call a sangha, yeah, a sangha. And when I say the parking lot is full, you say the car park is chockers, yeah, chockers. That's interesting. But there's this expression you have, um, and you often, many of you say, she'll be right, mate. She'll be right. I've heard people say that all the time. It's a classic Aussie phrase, she'll be right, no worries. Hakuna Matata, everything is going to be okay. And in my attempt to become more Australian, um, which is painful for some of you, I've decided to adopt that motto, she'll be right. The dishes need to be washed she'll be right. The lawn needs to be mowed, she'll be right. Uh, the car needs petrol, she'll be right. But the question is, will she be right? And the answer is no, not always. The laid-back approach to life doesn't always work. We know that. We know that, um, that dishes in the sink will stink up the house. We know that uh, an overgrown lawn will attract the, the rage of the neighbors. We know that a car without petrol is a car that goes nowhere. We all know that. She'll be right doesn't always work. And she'll be right doesn't always work in the church either. And I think Paul discovered that here in this chapter. The she'll be right, the laid back approach the, uh, to, to the church, to sin in the church, uh, was not okay. And Paul sees that here. He, he sees that the church is struggling with sin and immediate action needs to be taken. And so he writes this letter, and he writes it about 2,000 years ago, and he writes to this uh, little church off the coast of Greece, and they were facing some major problems. The Apostle Paul addresses uh, these problems. Uh, one of these problems uh, was uh, disunity in the church. Uh, Joel spoke about that the other week. Another problem was uh, some uh, Divisions regarding the Lord's Supper, there were issues regarding head coverings, there were all kinds of uh, issues, lawsuits, Christians uh, filing lawsuits against each other. And tonight we're going to look at one of these problems, and we'll look at how Paul deals with the problem, we'll look at how Paul uh, solves the problem, and then the lesson that is to be learned from the problem. So how Paul deals with the problem, how he solves the problem, and then the lesson that is to be learned from the problem. So let's look at this problem. What was the problem facing the Corinthian church here in chapter 5? Well, he spells it out in verse 1. What was the problem? A report was made to him 
by someone in the church, likely a, a, a woman named Chloe or someone associated with Chloe. And the report was this, that a man in the church, um, a member of the church, was in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. It was not a normal situation. It was the kind of situation you might hear about on an episode of Jerry Springer. Obviously, everyone in the church knew what was happening. People in the community knew that this man was having this relationship with his stepmom. It wasn't just a one-night stand either. It was an ongoing relationship that persisted. And the news was public, and Paul had caught wind of this news. The problem was that the Corinthian church accepted this relationship. They were proud that, that they were so tolerant that they, they would allow a relationship like this to persist. I mean, after all, this man, he's found love. They didn't care that he was sleeping with his father's wife. It was no issue. It was totally okay in the eyes of the, the deacons and the elders and the members of the congregation. Now, there's something you need to know about ancient Corinth. Ancient Corinth was kind of like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Corinth had its own red light district. It was up, built up on a hill in the form of a temple. And this temple was dedicated to a goddess named Aphrodite. And hundreds, maybe thousands of sex workers, prostitutes, lived in that temple and at night, they would come down from the temple to the docks, to the, the, the marketplace, and they would, um, they would try and make money off of the men who were passing through the city. This city was a debauched city. This city had a reputation for sexual immorality. This city uh, was a tolerant city, to use the, 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 the modern uh, word. It was one of the most liberal cities in the Roman, empires, Roman Empire. Um, they accepted homosexuality. They accepted uh, men having multiple partners. It was a culture where just about anything was acceptable, and basically nothing was off limits. Nothing was condemned in this city, except for one thing, incest. Incest was condemned in the Roman Empire, not just by the Jews, but also by the Greeks and by the Romans. Under Roman law, it was illegal. And as verse 2 tells us, if you're looking at your Bibles, not even the Jews, or not even the Romans, sorry, tolerated it. But this church tolerated it. The Corinthians were not worried about incest. And they were not worried about this man having this relationship, this sinful relationship with his father's wife. Now, perhaps there were many opinions in the church. We don't know. I'm, I'm speculating here. But perhaps there were those who simply just minimized the issue. It's no big deal. Yeah, it's a bit icky. But he loves her, and 
they're okay and they're not causing any issues, so let's just ignore it. And there may have been those who were affirming, allies of this man, who thought, oh, this is a great thing. He's found love. Who am I to tell him what he should or shouldn't do? And perhaps there were those who were conflicted about this man. That's probably the case that this man was a big deal. He was a respected member of their church. He may have been wealthy. He may have been giving lots of money to the church. And so they had every reason not to lose this man. He was a mate. He was a friend. People knew him. People loved him. People did not want to see him go. They were emotionally attached to this man. And that clouded their judgment. They didn't want to see him go. And because of that, they turned a blind eye towards sin. But we see that the Apostle Paul does not turn a blind eye. What was troubling about this situation was that the entire church was on board with this sin. They loved affirmed, and even celebrated something that God hates. And that was the Corinthian problem. Of all the cultures and all the churches in the Bible, I think the Corinthian church is much like the modern church. We live in a culture that is very tolerant of all kinds of things. And there is a temptation, isn't there, for the church to welcome the culture in, to embrace the culture, to say yes to the culture. Why? Because it will be beneficial for us. It will be beneficial for the church. At least, that's the lie that we tell ourselves. The Corinthian church is a today problem. It's a modern problem. Uh, Let me give you a few examples. Uh, I'm from Canada, as you know. And in Canada, there's this church called the United Church of Canada. And one of the moderators, the former moderator of that church, is a self-avowed atheist. Why did they allow a self-avowed atheist to remain as a minister? Well, because they were too afraid of offending her. That she was a friend. How could they possibly let their friend uh, be sacked? Or take... um, Take the Episcopal Church, USA. There are many churches, I'm not going to say all churches, but there are many that support abortion. Or take the Uniting Church and the celebration of same-sex unions. And let me pause for a second. And let me ask you a question. Do you think that the Corinthian problem could be a Donvale problem? Because, I mean, it's very easy for me to, you know, um, point the finger at all the other churches that are accommodating the culture. But what about us? What about our church? Could the Corinthian problem become a Donvale Presbyterian church problem? Absolutely, of course it could. We could become just like that church. How? when we slowly but surely over time stop taking sin seriously, when we start minimizing sin, when we start justifying sin, when we start tolerating sin, when we start embracing sin, and eventually even celebrating sin. 
You know, it's been said that the first generation may ignore sin, but the second generation, the third generation is the generation that embraces and celebrates sin. So the Corinthian problem is not just a problem outside of Donville, but it's also our problem. How do we solve this problem? How does the Bible solve this problem? Well, it takes sin seriously. It treats it as a real issue. And uh, that brings me to a second point. How does Paul solve this problem? How does Paul address this problem? Now, before we start addressing sin, the sin problem in the lives of other people, or even in the life of the church, we need to take a good look in the mirror. We need to look at ourselves because it's one of the easiest things that you can do is call out the sins of other people without calling out your own sins. I find it hard. I find it very easy to talk about other people's sin. I I find it very hard to tell you about my own sinfulness, but I am sinful. Just ask my wife. Jesus said that before we address the sins that exist in the lives of other people, we need to look at ourselves. Hypocrisy, in the words of Jesus, is addressing the speck in someone else's eye before addressing the log in your own eye. The challenge that I have every week as a pastor before getting up into this pulpit is to address the sins of my own heart because otherwise I'm just a hypocrite standing here before you. And isn't it our tendency to start um, addressing and pointing out the sins of everyone else and ignoring your own? Perhaps you've heard the classic example of this. You're sitting through a sermon the pastor is preaching on something like patience. Your spouse is, has been a little bit impatient with you this morning, so what do you do? You nudge her. You give her a wink. He's talking to you. Of course, you're Mr. Patience. You're perfectly patient. Everyone else is impatient, but you, you are patient. The problem is that you haven't looked in the mirror lately. You haven't seen the log or the speck or the, the beam that is jammed in your own eye. Before you even begin addressing the sins of other people, you have to come before God and you have to say to Him, I have a sin problem. Lord, forgive me for my sins and help me to change. But once you've addressed the log, or the beam, or the speck, or whatever has impaled your eye, you should still probably, in fact, you still must go to the other guy and say, but there's a speck, or there's a log, and that needs to be addressed. We need that. It's one of the blessings of the church, isn't it? That we have people who are involved in our lives. I mean, that Christianity is not just a me and Jesus religion. Christianity, the Christian faith, is a community. And we do need people to come alongside us, to walk alongside us, and to help us to address some of these problematic areas in our life. We need the input of believers who love and care for us to tell us when we've lost the plot. And on the flip side, we also need to be 
those people who walk alongside others with love and grace. Not, not self-righteously, not as if we don't have a sin problem and they do have a sin problem. We need to walk alongside other Christians, loving grace, and speak into their lives as well. We need that. And sometimes we do listen. I, I, there's a real good example of this in the Old Testament. You all know the, the, the true story of King David, right? And King David sinned against the Lord first and against Bathsheba. He looked at her while she was in the bath, and then he had an affair with her. And it, it, it destroyed her life, it destroyed his life, it, it destroyed the kingdom. It was clearly an egregious sin. And the prophet Nathan comes before David and in love, but also with firmness, addresses the sin in David's life. And he tells him straight up, this is wrong. You need to turn from the sin. You need to repent of what you've done. And David listens. And he found, finds, what does he find? He finds mercy. He finds blessing in the eyes of the Lord. He finds grace. He finds forgiveness. What a beautiful thing. Sometimes we listen. Sometimes we don't. That goes for all of us here. Sometimes we are too proud to listen. Too stubborn to change. Unable to see our own sin. Unable to listen to the people who are actually just simply trying to help us. And sometimes the people who are trying to help us don't get it right. Sometimes they're mistaken. But there's that, that pride that wells up within us that says, nah, you don't have anything to say to me. And according to Jesus, when a Christian reaches this point where he stubbornly refuses to repent of sin, according to the Bible, then that's when others need to step in. Why don't you look at Matthew chapter 18 with me? And look at verse 5. And Jesus is um, discussing conflict in the church or among believers, but this also relates, the principles still relate to how we address sin in the lives of believers. And our Lord Jesus said this in verse 5. He said, if a brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You hear that? Go and tell him. Go directly to him. Yeah, how many times as a pastor I have people coming to me, oh, you know, so-and-so did this. Can you deal with it? No, go, go talk to him first. That's what Jesus said. Go and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refused to listen then, Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, that's pretty clear, isn't it? The Lord made it simple. 
He didn't make it difficult. We're the ones who often make it too difficult. We make it complicated. The Lord actually made it quite simple, quite clear. And think about how this relates to the situation in Corinth, how this would have played out in Corinth. A man is sleeping with this lady. It's an incestuous relationship. The church doesn't take action, but they should have. And if they had implemented the pattern that Jesus gave them in Matthew 18, this is what would have happened. One of this man's close friends would have come to him and said, look, this has got to stop. You know this is wrong. He would have opened up uh, the Bible and he would have He would have worked through it with him, and he would have explained why he needs to stop. And if the man persists, then what should have happened? Two or three wise, gracious, loving people should have been brought in, and they should have addressed the situation alongside this man. And then what? If this man continued to persist, that's where the elders get involved. And it's not, it's not a, one of these situations where, where you go in, in and, and there's no grace and there's no love and there's no um, attitude of humility. This all needs to be done with an attitude of love and humility. And the elders should have pulled him, alongside, pulled him aside and reminded him of who he is in Christ and what Christ has done for him and then encouraged him uh, to break this relationship off. But we know, as Paul tells us, that in this situation, after, an, after, after several efforts have been made to address the situation, we know that from verse 9, this man has to make a choice, and his choice was, was to continue, to persist in sin. What should the church do in that situation? in these final stages of what we call church discipline. What does Paul do? Look at, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verses 2 to 5. And I'll read verses 2 to 5 for you. He says, the first verse here is very clear, let this man be removed from you. Remove this man. He is to leave the church. Then verse 3, for though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit, and as, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that what? So that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, if, if I were to if I were to compile a list of difficult Bible verses, that would be on the top 10. Uh, it's, it's hard to understand, and it sounds, sounds kind of harsh. Um, but this is how I understand the verse. This is how I take the verse. And other commentators agree. Or I guess I agree with other commentators. Paul has to make a judgment call here. Because the Corinthians weren't making a judgment call. The Corinthians were taking that she'll be right approach to church discipline. They were letting it slide under the rug. 
And Paul has to make a judgment call. Now, Paul is not in Corinth. He's not present with them. He's hundreds of miles away in Ephesus. He's not there with them. But in this letter, he's saying that, that the judgment call that he's made carries weight and it carries authority because he is issuing that judgment call in the name of Jesus as an apostle. So he's, he's trying to, he uses this language to ensure that they take action because he knows what? He knows that they're probably not going to take action. And he says, you need to remove this man. Why? Because it is having a negative effect on the entire church. The entire church is being led astray from Christ because of this man. He is to be removed from the church community. He is to be removed from that place where where he gets that blessing of fellowship and that blessing of hearing the word of Lord and that blessing of partaking in the Lord's Supper and being part of that community. They are to remove him. And once they remove him, where are they to put him? There's only two places. Either you are part of God's people or you are not. And so they are placing him back into the world. Now, let me ask you a question. Of all the characters in the Bible, who is the one who can tell me the one who is called the God of this age? Satan. Jesus called him the prince of the power of the air, the one who prowls like a roaring lion. And in a sense, Satan's realm is the unbelieving world. That's the realm that he's assumed for himself. So what does Paul mean when he says, oh, deliver this man to Satan? He's saying, put him outside of the church and put him in the realm of Satan. That's the place where Satan is king. And the hope is that the, the severity of being cut off from the church might wake him up, might shake him up, it might stir him up, that he will come to his senses and hopefully he will realize, hey, wait a second, this is not where I want to be. I want to be back there with God's people. I don't want to be out here with the, the roaring, prowling lion. I want to be in the presence of God as his people gather together for worship, which is what Paul says, that the presence of God was there um, in the church. And hopefully, the aim is that his sinful habit what Paul sometimes calls the flesh, would be destroyed, which is what Paul is on about here in this chapter. And the goal, ultimately, is that he will be saved, that he will come to his senses and he will believe and be reconciled to the church. Now, let me just say that taking this man, removing him from the church, that only solves part of the problem there's still a problem at the church. Even if you take the man away, you still have a church that has a very tolerant view of sin. The problem in Corinth was that they were celebrating sin. They had a she'll-be-right approach to sin. And in verses 6 to 12, Paul has a lesson for them, a reminder for them. 
which is my third point. Let's look at, why don't we read verses 6 to 8 together, and I'll explain what that means. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's using a metaphor here to teach them a lesson. And what's the metaphor? Sometimes the Bible describes the church in metaphor. Throughout the, the Old and well, throughout the New Testament, the church is described sometimes as what? As a temple, as a, as a field, as an olive tree, as a vine, as a family, as a household, as a flock. There are many images that describe the church in the Bible. And what is the church described as here? Dough. A lump of dough. And not just any lump of dough. There's no yeast in this lump of dough. There's another metaphor in verse 6. What's the metaphor? Yeast. Now, for a cappuccino, can anyone tell me what yeast? Some of you might need a cappuccino. Can anyone tell me what yeast symbolizes in the Bible? Sin. And there's another metaphor in verse 7. The metaphor is the image, I should say. Not metaphor, but an image. The image is a lamb. What does the lamb represent? Jesus. Sunday school answer. Jesus sacrificed on an altar, the lamb that was sacrificed on an altar. And this image points us to Christ. Now, let me explain the passage. Roughly every April, though it changes from year to year, as we celebrate Easter, observant Jews are celebrating a different holiday. Do you know what it is? Passover. And after Passover, they celebrate another holiday. So back-to-back holidays. Passover, then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on that holiday, it's roast lamb for dinner and then unleavened bread for the rest of the week. Now, as Christians, we know that the lamb sacrificed on Passover symbolizes Christ's sacrifice for our sin. But that's not all. Immediately after Passover, Jewish people go into their house, they go into their cupboards, and they go into their kitchen, and they go under their sinks, and they go behind their couches, and they look for any shred of yeast, and they eliminate it. They still do that to this day. They still celebrate this feast. Because yeast symbolizes sin. And, and the Passover lamb symbolizes the destruction of sin, the removal of sin. And so what Paul is saying here, through this image, trying to explain this passage here, what he's saying is he's saying that since Christ destroyed sin on the cross, since he eliminated sin, since through his death he forgave our sins, we should, therefore, go and eliminate sin from our lives and from our churches and from our communities. That's, that's the language is describing our fight against sin putting sin to death. 
that we might eliminate sin. And that's what he says in verse 7. He says, get rid of the yeast, a.k.a. get rid of sin, look for sin, fight sin, battle with sin, resist sin, flee from sin, clean your house when it comes to sin. And that, that goes not just for the church. I mean, he, he's, he's using this metaphor to describe what should be done in the church. He's saying, remove sin, remove this man. But it also applies to our lives as we fight against sin. How many of you have, that? well, I don't know if you have one of these in your yard, but we do, a, a stump. And the stump is, is, is uh, a tree that's been cut down, and every now and again these little shoots will come up. Derek Thomas uses this analogy, the shoots rising up. And even though sin has been destroyed, or the tree has been destroyed, those shoots need to be cut off repetitively and continually. And so it is with sin in our lives. We have this calling to, to fight against sin. Why? Why should we fight against sin? Paul says, your Savior, your Passover lamb, he died for it. He was sacrificed for it. That's the good news of the gospel. Christ Jesus gave his own life, his own blood, to forgive you, to wipe your slate clean, that you have no criminal record in God's eyes, no stain of sin on your record. The death of Jesus took care of that. And as we reflect on that truth as an act of gratitude, we should say, yeah, he died for my sin. How can I continue to live in sin? How can I continue to do these things that he hates if he gave his own life for me? And that's, that's what Paul's trying to get at here. But the mistake, the sin that was made by this Corinthian man was that he believed that the death of Christ was a license. It was a license to continue in an illicit relationship. Yeah, my past sins are forgiven. Perhaps even this relationship is forgiven by Christ. So I'm going to just keep doing what I want to do. Because after all, God's grace covers me, and I'm just going to keep living as I please. Well, that's not the gospel. That's a twisted form of the gospel. That's not Christianity. It's a twisted form of Christianity. The good news of Jesus is not only that God forgives our sin, but that God God's Spirit indwells our lives and that He changes us. And we should expect that change. And that change doesn't always look the same in everyone. And we don't, we don't expect that the church will look perfect, but we expect that a healthy church will look like a people indwelt by the Spirit who have that desire, new desires, to fight against sin because that's what His grace does to us. And as we do this, we are meant to be like a light in this dark world. Now, there are, if you're looking in your Bibles, there are a few more verses that I haven't got to yet. And I'm going to try and tackle those verses in the time that we have left. These are verses 9 to 12. But he gives us some instructions here. 
He gives the church some instructions. He says, and let me read it to you. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idol an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I do to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. Now, what he has in mind are these believers or these people who call themselves believers who sit in the pews on Sunday morning and they are perfectly fine with their sin. They affirm their sin. They live a life of unrepentant disobedience. And they are actively trying to rally people to their cause. They want people to imitate their way of life. They are, want people to affirm them and accept them and embrace their lifestyle. That's who he has in mind here. And these people, he's saying, have a negative effect on the greater body of the church. So that, you know, someone sitting over here on Sunday morning might look at him and say, oh yeah, he's doing this, maybe I'm going to do this too. Or someone over here is saying, yeah, they're doing this, so I'm going to follow suit. And what he's saying here is he's saying, that's not the people you associate with, those people. They are not going to help you in your Christian faith. They won't. They're, they're going to hinder you. And he's saying, don't associate. And I think there's a lot of debate about this. But when it says, do not eat with such a one, he might have in mind the Lord's Supper. So what he's not saying, I don't believe he's saying that we have zero contact with these people. Because there may be instances where we want to share the gospel with these people. And where we reach out to them and we encourage them to turn back to faith in Christ. So I, I don't believe that this is, you know, a lose-all-contact situation. But he's, he's warning them. He's saying that these people are not going to help you in your faith. What he does not have in mind is, is who? Who are we to associate with? Who are we to reach out to? Well, he says, I wrote in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. What is our mission as Christians? Our mission is to be salt and light to the world. Our mission is to go to the, those places where people don't know Jesus, where people are sexually immoral, where people are greedy, where people do worship idols. We are to go to those places. We are to proclaim the message of Christ to those people. We are to love those people. That's what, you know, look at the life of Jesus. He often gained this false reputation of being one who was eating with tax collectors and sinners because he went to those people. He didn't participate in the things that they were doing, but he went to them. He's, he's saying here, you don't remove yourself from those people. No, you go and witness to those people. 
Because that's, that's what we are called to do, to be salt and light to these people. So, that's, that's chapter 5, really. And chapter 5 is this, this reminder that, that when it comes to, and it's pretty full on, isn't it? When it comes to sin in the church, we can't afford to take a she'll be right approach. Oh, we need to deal with it. That's the message that he wants to, to give us. And the gospel of Jesus Christ does give us a way to deal with it. We are called to deal with it as Christ. We, we can think of that as we deal with conflict or sin in the church. We might, we might remember that we deal with these things as we, as we reflect the, the person of Jesus Christ. We bear his image as we deal with these things. So we deal with these things with love and grace. Let me conclude with this story about St. Augustine. Did you, you all know who St. Augustine is. No. Okay, we'll do a sermon series on church history. Did you know St. Augustine was something of a rascal? He was a bit of a rascal. He got himself into all kinds of problems. He wrote this big, long book called The Confessions. So he didn't paint himself as a holy man. He shares, uh, he confesses the lies he's told, the things he stole, even the story of a mistress he had. Um, in some, some ways, without the incest, he was like the Corinthian man. But he discovered God's grace, and he was converted. And on one of his visits back to his hometown, he came across who? His mistress. She called out to him, Augustine, 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 it is I. He just ignored her. Augustine, it is I. Remember me. And you know what? how Augustine responded? He said to the woman, yes, but it is no longer me. And that's the attitude that we have to have as Christians. As Christians, we will continue in a fight against sin. We will struggle with sin. We will fall. We will, um, we will um, make mistakes and sin. But at the same time, we have to say to ourselves, we are not that person who we once were. We have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, and we are being changed by him. So that what? So that we might die to sin, and we might live for him, knowing what? That his grace empowers us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come to this difficult passage. We thank you for it. Lord, use it to stir up the hearts and lives of those who are hearing it, that they might be spurned on um, either to seek you, to um, come before you with the, the sins that burden them and that weigh upon their hearts, that they might confess those to you and repent of them and turn from them, that by your grace you might change them and help them as they live the Christian life. And Lord, for those of us who are burdened, Lord, we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
And we pray that you would comfort us with the precious promises of the gospel. So we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. And, uh,